Hey, what's up, guys? It's Rico here, CEO of Source Find Asia, host the main channel podcast, and the host of the Source Find Asia YouTube channel, of course, back with another one. So, I had another one of these great conversations with an entrepreneur in you know an adjacent space. Emma Tamir um, has a company called Marketing by Emma. That's marketingbyemma.com. We'll link up her company in the show notes as well. Basically, her business focuses on optimizing Amazon listings and e-commerce listings as a whole. But Amazon has, has been the focus of her business for the for the last little while, and she has specialization in, in copywriting. And and she's got a, a small team that she's growing out. Her husband's also, I think, a business partner as well. So, yeah, we just had a great conversation about you know business and life and how she got started. And one of the key takeaways from this episode and i'm sure somebody who any one of you guys who's listening to this and who's heard me before and who's experiencing it has, has experienced it themselves you might be thinking well like isn't the heyday of of being an amazon seller kind of over unless you had your own amazon store from a while ago and you had multiple SKUs and things like that how do you especially with you know chinese companies selling directly and just the oversaturation of the market of the the abundance of sellers out there how do you stick out and what's you know what's the importance of e-commerce optimization listing optimization in that space and copywriting and you know she she answered that question really well and i I think the aspect was like she just asked me to think about how i shop when i'm when i'm shopping for stuff online and when i think about it it's like similar to the way i do research when we're looking for suppliers like the first thing i look at is if i'm looking at the listings i'm searching for a product there's 100 200 listings you kind of look at the amount of reviews and the ratings of those reviews first. And then what I would typically do is I'd probably open up about 10, 15, 20 listings and then just kind of quickly browse through the 10, 15, 20 and sort of narrow down to like the best three to five. And then I actually go and read in, in detail the actual listing, you know, the, the, the benefits of the product, the features, all of that stuff. And then also I go into the reviews. So if you look at it from that perspective it's like yeah like if you read the listing and it's not very detailed or it doesn't give you the right information which a lot of the sort of like the the chinese sellers that are are new to the game don't necessarily fully understand what the customer is looking for and that's where she that's where emma's team comes in is they really understand how people view these listings and what the right information is to have on these listings and how to word it and structure it in a way that makes it different and attractive to a potential buyer so yeah i think it was a really good episode and uh i'll let you guys enjoy it cheers i don't want to be a product of my environment i want my environment to be a product of me when you meet somebody in a social setting that's not familiar with your industry how do you answer the question what do you do that is a great question because since i since we work in e-commerce i feel like if somebody has no knowledge of e-commerce then i need to give a completely different intro than people that are in the space so yeah. when i'm meeting somebody that really knows very little then i i kind of just distill it down to saying we help businesses sell better online. Uh, And Mm. what I mean by that is that we help with marketing writing for things like Amazon listings and website copy, but even words like copy and 
Amazon listings start to go over people's heads if they're unfamiliar with those things. So I think that's the, the simplest way to distill it down and give a, a strong sense of what it is that we do. It's a good point that you brought up. There's like, I, I found the same thing is I have to give different answers depending on who I'm talking to. And one thing is like, because we have this online community of, you know, people like yourself that do copywriting for Amazon, I have my podcast as a lot of my customers, are Amazon sellers and stuff. We get so used to regurgitating the same sort of buzzwords and keywords and they've become very normalized to us. But, you know, to the average person, just saying the word copy, you know, that has a completely different meaning. Right. right. Exactly. And a lot of people, when I say copywriter, then they immediately go to copyrights and trademarks. So more of the legal side yeah. of things. And I'm like, nope, not a lawyer, not dealing with <laughs> not dealing with things like that. Uh, while I was always told I should be a lawyer, which may, may not have been a, a positive reflection on me. I didn't end up ever going that direction. Was that because you were like you argued a lot with people? Or I <laughs> I really like to uh, verbally spar over ideas, and I will take a contrarian mm. opinion just for the sake of fleshing out an idea. Or you know, I I just I'm very curious, and so I think it's one of the ways that I like to sometimes engage with other people but I'm also pretty good at finding the flaw in the logic and mm -hmm. I'm not shy about pointing that out. <laughs> like I'm the, I'm I, the person I, that will wait on the phone and waste so much time talking to a company, trying to just understand why their policy is a certain way, because it's not even that they're telling me <laughs> no, it's just that I want to understand yeah. why that answer is no, because it's, it's totally absurd to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when I was, uh, I used to get the, you know, you should be a lawyer thing, but I think it's just because I'm stubborn, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I don't like losing arguments. Yeah. I'm um, right there with you. So take me to your beginning. Like, where are you from? Um, how did, you know, your life experiences lead up to you starting your business? Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people that are in business, they have those sort of, entrepreneurial origin stories where they're like, I always knew I was going to be a business owner. And by the time I could talk, I was selling things. And that was not me at all. Uh, so mm -hmm. I grew up in Missouri and that's where I'm based now. But I did a lot of traveling in between. I've lived on four continents. I've lived in uh, South America. I lived in Spain. I, I lived in Israel. And throughout those times, I was... It, oftentimes working in a in the marketing field, not necessarily because I wasn't originally drawn to marketing, but because I was always very strong with language and writing. And so it was one of those things that even before I graduated college, when I was working at jobs and bosses would discover that I had this skill, then suddenly I would be taking on, you know, helping with the newsletter or the blog or all of these sorts of things. And so at first it was just something I fell into and then as I learned more and more about it, I really started to get much more interested in concepts of psychology and different sorts of buyer personas and how all of these things fit, fit together. And, you know, I was, I was talking about how curious I am. And so marketing is such a great space to really dig into understanding how humans work and think and figuring out how you can utilize that understanding to help businesses find success. 
And so I was doing marketing for other companies. And when I met my husband, who's also my business partner, on our second date, he was like, I don't care whether we stay together or not, but you have to quit your job. You're miserable. And I would love to help you find something else. And it wasn't that long after that I was no longer working at that job. And it wasn't that much longer after that, that he had started to, without my consent necessarily, find me freelancing jobs. And eventually, uh, with enough of his pushing, he eventually, um, again, sort of pushed forward before I was quite ready to take that leap in starting this business. And he really saw the opportunity in the e-commerce space and that there was a great need for really strong marketing writing. And so I was a little bit hesitant at first and not particularly interested in owning my own business. And that was in 2016. And honestly, since then, I can't imagine not being a business owner. I can't imagine what life would look like ever going back to working for somebody else in that way. And I also understand that a lot of the frustrations that I'd had in various jobs and positions that I, that I worked in over the years were because I wasn't necessarily a great fit for working in a traditional office setting uh, for other people. And so that was kind of that retrospective aha moment that I've, that I've come to in more recent years. You, you mentioned living in, in multiple countries for different continents. Was that just travel or was that work-based? Uh, sort of some of both. So the first time that I, that I lived abroad was I studied abroad in Ecuador when I was in college. And so that was studying and living with a family and, um, and traveling. I wasn't working at that time. And then when I graduated college, I was actually, I had aligned a, a job to, I guess, sort of explore that law element from a different perspective. I had been offered a job for, with a lobbying firm and then I got sick. And so I had about a month and a half that I was able to just think and I realized how much that was an opportunity that came to me, but not necessarily one that I wanted to take. And I'd remembered seeing these signs on campus that previous fall about teaching English in Spain. And I just kind of, I became consumed with that. And I called office after office trying to find information. Nobody knew what I was talking about. And eventually... The person that picked up the phone at one of the offices just happened to be somebody that had done that program the year before. And so she was able to connect me with the details for that. So when I lived in Spain, I was teaching English through the, the government. They have a program that connects native English speakers with schools to help with their English fluency programs. And then I was also running my own business as an English tutor. So those were the first two. And then when I lived in Israel, that was more of just living, working, kind of, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going there just for a, a short defined period of time. I was there for three years and um, I worked in some startups while I was there and, and some other things like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I see like a lot of correlations with the guests that I have on with a passion or interest in travel. And then also a lot of people that taught English uh, as a means to to go abroad because I, I taught English when I first moved to China and I've just had a lot of guests that have similar experiences. Yeah, I guess it must be one of those things where it's one of the easier ways to legally be able to live in a different country. Mm -hmm. 
because there are so many programs like that. You know, the just the logistics. I think when you grow up in the States, you don't necessarily think about the challenges of immigration and, and how complicated some of those things can be. And so that provides a pretty easy, done-for-you way to live somewhere else and still be able to, you know, work there, which particularly if you really want to become a part of the society that you're living in. If you're just kind of like working remotely and living in hostels, then you're kind of on the surface. You know, you're not really getting a true sense of, of what it's like to live and be in that place. Yeah. So you mentioned basically your husband kind of pushed you because he noticed that you're unhappy and then you started basically doing some freelance. When did, when did it get to a stage where you were like, oh, this is this is what I'm doing now. This is my business and this is my full-time thing and I want to push forward with this. It happened really quickly. Uh, so I was working for a company doing sales and marketing at the time that my husband really started pushing this a little bit harder. And I was like, what are you doing? I, <laughs> like, I don't think there's anything here. And he he's just much more the visionary than I am. Like I'm much stronger at figuring out how things work together and 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 like more on the operations side of things and I do have a creative mind but I don't necessarily have that you know ability to see the potential that the future holds in the same way that he does and so really quickly things just started picking up I mean I'm talking about with within the course of a month or two. And that's something really interesting about the Amazon space in particular is it's a pretty small community, all things considered in, in the world of business. And it's very connected despite the fact that people are all over the world. And so it was one of these things where we had a few clients and then before I knew it, we were getting approaches from Australia and Europe and just all over the world of people interested in uh, working with us. And so we were very fortunate to have early on great people that were excited by what we were doing and wanted to tell other people about it. And that just kind of snowballed. Yeah, Amazon FBA is an in interesting industry because I feel like this was one of the first sort of business or gold rushes, if you want to call it, that was completely like online in the sense that you have the Facebook communities, Facebook groups, Reddit groups, where, you know, a couple of people figure something out and then they share that information and everybody's around the world. And then it's like this one play, one site that everybody starts gravitating towards and they're sourcing from China and then everybody's going through the same issues. And then, you know, if one person figures it out and works with a company like yours or works with a company like mine, they immediately go to the group and say, I work, I use these guys. These guys were great. Um, so it is, it's interesting how connected it is on a global scale. Like uh, I think a lot of other businesses are very like regional. Yeah. Um, they're very specific to one country or specific to one, one city or, you know. And also kind of like there are more gatekeepers, I think, in a lot of traditional business where it's not so democratized, you know, here people, people can start communities, people you know, when they share an opinion, it's something that they can get in front of a lot of people. Whereas in more traditional businesses, there may be those professional organizations or the publications and things like that. And so there just isn't that same 
level of instant connection. And there's also a lot of more bureaucracy involved in all of it. So I think because Amazon and e-commerce is moving so quickly and there are just so many pieces to figure out, that's really one of the, I think, big things that makes it behave in the way that it does. Because, you know, Amazon announces some new change and then everybody has to work together to figure out how do we how do we find an alternative solution to something that was we were able to do previously and now can't. For sure. Um, before we get into the specifics of your business, uh, marketingbyemma.com, what do you think about the current state of Amazon, just from your perspective? Because I, I mean, I talk to, usually I talk to sellers and, you know, a lot of sellers feel maybe jilted by Amazon in some ways. Uh, maybe they feel like they're not appreciated. And then also the, there's a lot of competition coming in from, you know, Chinese sellers coming direct to market and uh, sort of, you know, price gouging. Uh, not price gouging, the opposite of price gouging, sort of uh, being very much more price competitive, obviously, because they, they can maybe sell directly from a factory. So what what is that? Yeah. Uh, how has that affected your business, I guess, is my question. Well, I think that it's affected our business in that when we started a few years ago, it was much easier and cheaper to be a player in Amazon. There was way less competition. Amazon was far less strict with a lot of things. And so, you know, with $5,000, you could really start your way towards building a, an empire. What I see shifting is that the branding element is becoming so much more important. I'm so surprised to see how many people right out of the gates when they're starting a business now are brand registered because there are so many different features that Amazon has been rolling out. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think there are a few reasons for that. One being that because you're having to invest more initially, that you want to really make sure that you're giving yourself as good of an opportunity to succeed as possible. But also when you start to figure out that branding piece, then you can actually elevate yourself out of this price based competition. Because if you're selling the exact same thing as 20 other sellers online, and then your manufacturer decides that they want to go sell directly on Amazon, then and you don't have anything to differentiate you, even if it's not a, a feature of the product itself, even if it really is just that branding piece and that sense of who your business is and what you're trying to achieve, then you're fighting a losing battle. But if you can tap into that, not only can you make the conversation about something else, but you can also really help to foster that relationship and that trust with your customers that people are not necessarily having instantly with Amazon, because that's the other thing. A few years ago, I don't think that many customers understood that there were third-party sellers on Amazon. So they just assumed that everything they were buying from Amazon, unless it was a brand that they knew, was just sold by Amazon, that there wasn't anybody else in that transaction. And so as more stories have come out and as Amazon has grown so much in the public awareness, people understand that there are bad actors and that they need to be careful about the products that they're buying because they don't want to buy something that doesn't meet the safety standards that they need it to or is counterfeit and things like that. So the trust component is so important. And then I think the last piece about the branding is you know, like when COVID 
really started to become a global issue in February and March, the fragility of Amazon businesses started to really play out. So while some people were doing really well, there were a lot of others that were struggling either because of shipping delays or you know, any number of different things, prioritization of, of essential goods and whatnot. And so if you're looking to build a business with longevity, Amazon is a great place to gain brand exposure and to build a business and to generate uh, a lot of great sales. But I think that also wanting to expand into other channels is a really important piece for a lot of people's long-term strategies that they may not have thought about prior to this. I think a lot of people before February were very happy having Amazon-only businesses. And after the way that things played out in the early spring, they understood that that it's important to maybe diversify themselves, even if that even if Amazon is still going to be the primary chunk of their business. So that was sort of a long and winding answer. I hope I made sense with with all of those thoughts. No, it's good. It's good. Like um, I, something that you said made me think of. Uh, I don't know if you listened to a podcast called Reply All. Uh huh. Yeah, I yeah. listened to a few few episodes here and there. I need to make that a bigger part of my. Uh, listening repertoire. I love that. I love that uh, that show. I've listened to every single episode since they they launched. But there was, uh, I think it was about two years ago. There was a podcast that they did um, on Amazon, specifically Amazon FBA, and uh, they actually interviewed one of my friends. He he was like one of the, I guess not. I don't even know if he was anonymous, but he was just one of the like Amazon sellers that they you know they get sound bites from. And I knew from that day, I was like. Two, two or three years ago, I was like, if it's on Reply All, it's this is becoming way more mainstream because some of the stories that they were talking about are what you mentioned, where people would order uh, a branded, you know, electronic uh, electric toothbrush, thinking that it's coming from Amazon in the states, and then it takes three weeks to be delivered, and then when they received it, they saw like the postage was from China and the UK, and <laughs> the brand wasn't even the original brand that they they wanted. So yeah, I definitely think there's way more awareness from from the buyers these days about what they're actually getting when they when they purchase products from Amazon, and um, I definitely agree. I think diversifying is is super important. I've found some of the people that have been selling on Amazon for a while. Some of my clients have now transitioned into branding, but mostly trying to create their own products, like original designs. I think the old way of starting an Amazon business was, you know, find the trendy products. And then people sort of have this hodgepodge of of a product catalog that becomes really difficult to assemble into some sort of cohesive whole. And there are still people that do that and find success. But I think more and more people are understanding the importance of having a clear vision of who they're selling to, and what they're selling and where they're trying to go from the get-go so that even if they are just starting on Amazon, they have a sense of what they need to do to get to the point that they feel confident opening up a Shopify store or approaching you know, other channels like Walmart and things like that. 
Whereas before that, that may not have been the strategy that people were taking. Sure. So uh, just going through your website, uh, I see different packages for Amazon listing optimization. Uh, can you just run me through specifically what you guys do and how you help sellers with their branding? Yeah, so we are a copywriting firm for e-commerce sellers. So we work a lot with Amazon sellers in particular, helping with Amazon listing optimization. And so when you're writing for Amazon and really anything online, there are a few things that you're needing to juggle simultaneously. So with Amazon, obviously SEO is so important. And so understanding what keywords to use and how to integrate them is an essential part of creating a successful listing. And so we understand that piece. However, we also really are writers at the core. And so we love digging into what the product is, what problem it's solving, why customers will love it, who, what customers we should really be focusing on, and making sure that the entire listing is written in a way that's going to excite, engage with, educate your dream customers and get them clicking add to cart. So when a lot of people do their own writing, there are a few things that they'll naturally do that are not necessarily what you want to be doing when you're writing a listing for Amazon or a product page for Shopify. And that includes really focusing almost exclusively on the features of a product. And people buy things because they're looking to solve a problem in some way. And so we help our clients drill down and figure out what those deeper things are that your product is satisfying and how we can communicate that in a way that's going to be very compelling and also help differentiate yourself even when you're selling a product that is nearly identical as 20 other sellers on the marketplace. I know this is like a very basic question, but I think it's important to ask. Um, for a lot of people that might be listening, might be like, well, I can write my own copy. Like, How important is it to have your copy professionally done? You know, I've seen plenty of people that don't have a, a writing background create very decent listings. However, there are a few things that you want to be thinking about and aware of if you are contemplating whether it's something that you want to do yourself or whether you want to hire somebody else to do. So I think because writing is something that we all have to do all of the time just in our lives, we forget that it's a craft sometimes, just like anything else. So, you know, writing isn't all that different from music or art, photography, but because some of those things maybe require additional tools, they seem like you need a professional to do them. Whereas writing, you have a computer and hands or voice to text, even if you don't, you're, you don't have use of your hands and you can write something. But it is really something that is a craft that should be honed over time. And if you're writing for yourself and you don't have a lot of experience with that, you want to be sure that you have a very clear understanding of what a good keyword strategy looks like, that you're not being exaggerated with the language that you're using. A lot of times when I see people writing their own copy, 
they'll fall into what I call uh, late night infomercial speak. So using those really over the top claims of this is the best and most innovative and mind blowing. And unless you can really back up those sorts of statements, you should avoid saying them because all you're doing is overselling yourself to your customers and creating an opportunity for disappointment, an opportunity for negative reviews, returns, extra hassle. So it's not just about making that initial sale. You want to make sure that the people actually want to keep the product that you're selling them and not only keep it, but that they're going to be happy with it and use it and, and be excited to tell other people about it. So that's something else that you want to be really wary of. And then additionally, Amazon is a tricky place to write for. So there are plenty of words that if you use them, you may get your listing suppressed or suspended and it can be a real challenge to get it back up and running, particularly if you are selling outside of, if your business isn't a US-based business. So some words that you would have no idea could be triggering to the algorithm can be and can create a lot of headaches. So you certainly can write your own listings, but you also want to think about the fact that when you're selling something online, your product page is the equivalent of your salesperson. And so that's really one of your only opportunities to make a good impression with potential customers and get them excited about you and your product. And so if you have mediocre imagery, if you have uh, sloppy writing or just boring writing, then it's sort of like having a salesperson at your store who rolled out of bed and may, you know, is coming with an unshaved face and, and bedhead hair and, and yesterday's clothing and smelling of, of, of the bar the night before. Or if you have a really great listing with high quality images and very impactful language, then that's a sharply dressed salesperson that is going to make a much more positive first impression with potential buyers. What do you think are some of the, I mean, you might've already touched on this, but what do you think are some of the misconceptions some of your potential customers have about this? So I would say some misperceptions are nobody reads. That's probably one of the biggest, <laughs> one of the biggest things. And in some respects, there is a little bit of truth to that. I think that the average person is not reading your listing from top to bottom. However, there are some people that are, and you want to capture as many sales yeah. as possible. So you want to make sure that you're appealing to them. But there are also a lot of people that are in between. So they're skimming your listing. They have perhaps mm -hmm. particular buying criteria that they need to satisfy. So you want to make it easy. I'm, I'm the I'm the in between yeah. person. I'm not. I don't read yeah. the whole listing, but I definitely skim. And if through. you're skimming and something catches your attention, then you may stop to read a little bit more, right? So yeah. the skimmer can be a reader depending upon if they're engaged, if they're interested, or if they stop to read what it is that they need to read, but they find something else that is next to that, that is also interesting to them in some way. I think with me in terms of being in between, the reason why I skim is because I'll usually open like 10 different listings 
and then I'll skim through all of them and then I'll pick like let's say the best three, the ones that have the the three that I think are the best. And then I'll actually read those. I'll go in depth and and, and read through the entire thing. See, so there you go. So you are reading, but your first impression yeah. is to really quickly weed a lot of them out. And so do you want to be in that first culling and and get weeded out because you were skimming it and you couldn't find like let's say you're you're looking for some sort of piece of like a computer item. And so you need something that's compatible with your particular device. So if you can't easily find that compatibility piece, it's going to get cut quickly because why waste your time reading a full listing of something that doesn't satisfy that basic requirement. And so you have those initial things that you must clearly communicate. And then you have some of those deeper things that you can use to really set yourself apart. And so often, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you go on to Amazon and I think the second misconception is that you should try to sell to everybody and taking the top competitor as your influence and copying exactly what they're doing. And Let's go back to thinking as a customer for a moment. So you're on Amazon, you're looking for whatever it is you're looking for, a microphone or a phone case or a coffee mug. I'm just pointing out the things that are sitting in front of me as we're speaking right now. And so you're on, you're on Amazon and you're looking for one of these items and you type in your search terms and you get the first page of search results and you're starting, your eyeballs are starting to scan the page and everything looks identical and everything's priced almost identically. So then what do you do? You, you have the, the price is the same, the title's the same, the images are the same. So, what do you have? You have the reviews probably. So you'll pick the few, a few with the most reviews and then that's where you'll start to do a little bit of deeper research. But how often do you, are, do you open up the listings that have the top reviews and then all of them look the same? And so you sit there like not really knowing what to purchase because everything feels identical and you don't really know yeah. how to make a decision. It's frustrating that decision paralysis is something that I try to minimize in my life, but I feel like Amazon is one of those places where I always end up scratching my head and wasting more time than what I'd like to trying to de decide between products. And so if you're just copying what the top competitors are doing, you're actually making it harder for customers to choose you because people will most of the time in that case probably just end up defaulting to the one with the most positive reviews. Whereas if you can differentiate yourself and help make that decision easier for people, then you have an opportunity to capture more sales and not just be exclusively competing on price and reviews. Totally agree with that. When you first started the company, what were some of your biggest struggles and how did you overcome them? Early on, I, I had the opportunity to see Michael Gerber, who is the, oh e-myth oh, and the e-myth revisited. Yeah, he's awesome. So he was a speaker at the Prosper Show, which is a big Amazon seller conference a few years ago. And so that was one of the first actual live events that we attended and he was the keynote speaker. And I must say I was a little bit skeptical at first and then I read the E-Myth Revisited and skeptical I, of him, not of him, just of, I don't know. The book didn't seem that interesting to me and I yeah. didn't, 
I just didn't go in with an open mind and I quickly realized how foolish I was because I'm reading it and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is me to a T because when we started this business, I was doing all the writing and I thought, well, how can anybody else do as good of a job as I do at this and, and it's my name on it and that just doesn't make any sense. But you also, you can't run a business and do everything that needs to be done. And, you know, I was, I was 100% the, the character in his story there of the person working in their business instead of on their business. And I still feel like I'm in that space a lot of the time, but I have really worked over the last few years in moving myself up the ladder and I am working towards the day when I can really use the majority of the time to be focused working on my business. Not there yet, but it is, it is a goal. So you'd say that the biggest struggle was just getting over that initial hump of like, I need to let go of control. Yes, definitely. I am a, I'm a perfectionist and I am also a little bit of a control freak. And so that was very difficult for me. But also, I had to realize that if we wanted to grow our business, that was the only way forward. But what I also realized is in letting go of some of those things, I actually discovered all of these other functions within the business that I really enjoy that I wouldn't have been able to do if I was still on the ground level. You know, we could, we could have decided to be a very tiny little business and I do all the writing and we would have been able to, to make a great and successful business from that. But I really enjoy a lot of the other challenges of growing a business and growing a team and mentoring other writers and all of those types of things that I, I wouldn't have been able to do had I stayed in, in more of that, essentially just being a freelancer. Yeah. I think he also talks about, you know, the artists that become the artist that starts a, a business. And then the moment when that artist can remain an artist within yes. their business, or they have to become a business person first and an artist second. I think that's yes. kind of like what you're what you're talking about. Yes, and I think also the other thing is I I actually really started disliking a lot of the writing that I had to do because it became so transactional and so in in really internalizing his whole concept and not necessarily being the one doing all of the writing of the Amazon listings and whatnot, then I could begin to explore some of the other types of writing that I enjoy. And I could reconnect with my joy for writing rather than just purely having it as what I was doing because I had to do it because people were paying me to do it. It's awesome. I, I really loved... Um... E-Myth Revisited was great, but I think my favorite book from him is The Most Successful Small Business in the World. Um, I have not read that. Oh, my gosh. I'm writing it down right now. Same concepts. He just kind of – it's it's one of the later books that he, he wrote. It's the same concepts. He just kind of expanded on some other things. And I just like that one. I like that one a little bit more than E-Myth Revisited. Cool. I'll need to check it out. I probably need a reminder of some of his pointers anyway. So even if it's similar, it <laughs> doesn't hurt to to brush up and, you know, stare your mistakes in the face a little bit. 
you mentioned some of the some of the other aspects of your business that you took great interest in. So I think you you just you mentioned like mentoring and growing writers. Were those the only ones? Are those the main ones, or are there any other things that you discovered? No, like, oh, you know, I'm, I never thought I was in, into accounting for 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 example. Uh, yeah, accounting is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> same, same for me. I knew I, I knew I didn't like accounting, and I still don't like accounting. Yeah, there's nothing I enjoy about um, any of that of those types of things. Those are probably some of the tasks I like least about business ownership. But I love. I love figuring out how to make things more efficient. Like every time that there's some sort of issue that pops up, my first response is like, why did the system fail us? And how can we make it stronger to prevent this from happening again? And, and I just, I don't know why. I guess it's maybe in some ways what we were talking about earlier with, with I really like understanding the why behind things. And I my brain is sort of this weird blend of logic and creativity. And so that is something that like we were getting ready to hire on some new people and we'd never done that fully remote before. And so some of the training that we'd had needed to be completely re-envisioned to make sure that they were still receiving the same quality of training and feeling just as much a part of the team as if they were in the office sitting next to people. And so being able to really work through that whole process in my head and think about all of the different points that we may not have been considering or that we needed to rework for this this new way of onboarding people was really fun to me and and something that I never would have thought that I would have enjoyed, but that I like a lot. So just moving into some of the closing questions, uh, the first question I'd ask is, obviously, you know, as business owners, we always try to stay ahead and, and we're thinking about what we're doing right now, but we're also planning for the future with COVID that's thrown a lot of people's plans out the window. But what is your what has changed in terms of what you plan for your business in the in the next, let's say one, two, three years, if anything? Well, so a lot of our plans definitely uh, imploded with COVID. I was actually yeah. I was supposed to be speaking at three events in March. Uh, two in Europe and then at the Prosper show in Las Vegas and the European events were drawing closer and this was this was late February early March and I was starting to panic because I was thinking this COVID thing is starting to feel sort of serious but nobody really is talking about it in the states yet but I just don't think that it's necessarily a responsible choice to be traveling to Europe and what if we got stuck somewhere and what would all of that look like and so we were starting to have to confront some of these harder decisions before a lot of a lot of US based businesses even had it on their radar so on the one hand that gave us an opportunity to prepare for it a little bit ahead of everybody else but one of our big marketing strategies was attending a lot of events and so i just kind of saw 2020 and all of the promise that it held kind of disintegrate in front of me. And that was pretty difficult. However, in its wake, I have realized while I do miss going to events, I'm able to be so much more productive, not 
traveling constantly. And so it's not that I don't plan to ever return to going to live person events when they happen, but it's been great to be able to have so much focused time to work on projects and, and do things that were always getting splintered by either preparing to leave or traveling or having to come back and get caught up. So I think, um, well, I was just going to say, I think we'll be a lot more deliberate about what events we attend in person. We've been doing a lot of uh, virtual events as well, which has been great. And I would say as far as what our business plans look like in the core, they haven't really changed that much. I think they've just in some ways maybe sped up what we've been working on anyway, which is we want to be the best e-commerce copy company out there. Everything from the quality of the work that we provide to the quality of the service that we provide. We've never missed a deadline since we opened in 2016. That's something we're really proud of. So maintaining all of those things and figuring out how to grow because, you know, e-commerce has really just exploded in a positive way. And so we want to make sure that we're able to keep up and continue to deliver the quality that has allowed us to get to where we are right now as we, as we grow. I was going to ask, has it changed? Cause you said, um, a lot of your strategy was going to events. Has it changed the way you market your business? Not really. Uh, I would say it's, you know, there, there's something that can't be replicated by in-person events. And that's why I say that we'll never stop going to them because those opportunities for networking and conversations, whether it's standing in line to get lunch or a coffee or attending a, a party in the evening all of those sorts of things, despite the coolest technology, it's not the same when you're online. So that's something that we do miss. And I've, I've tried my best to substitute that by just reaching out to people that I'd like to connect with, but it's, it's definitely not, not the same. And that's where I think we haven't 100% figured out how to reroute that in this fully virtual age, but I would say not so much. Um, it's really just finding different ways to get in front of people. And so a lot of that for us has been participating in virtual events and, you know, having conversations like we're having today. What is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in your business? You know, you prepared me for this question and I convinced myself that I would have <laughs> an answer by the time it came around and I am still a little puzzled by it. It is such a good question. I suppose I would have to say the best, smallest thing I've done is it's not really small, so that's why it's it's hard for me to say smallest, but for a year, I tried to hire an executive assistant and I failed, let me count, one, two, three, three times. And the fourth time, uh, oh. I hit the jackpot. And it's been really life-changing to have a fantastic person to be able to 
really feel like I have a co-pilot in a lot of things because even though my husband and I are business partners, we have very different functions in the business. And so there's something about when you are a business owner that you feel like you're kind of off in your own world, carrying all of this weight and making all of these big decisions and managing so many different things and, and having somebody there both to help with the task load, which I, I would not be able to manage on my own, but also as a teammate has been incredible. So you said executive assistant or like a virtual assistant? Yeah, an executive assistant. So, I mean, she is virtual now because we're in the same, she's in Missouri as well, but we're working remotely right now. So I suppose it's virtual. What is one thing that you believe that when you tell other people, they think it's crazy or ridiculous? Oh, that's a good question. The answers that pop into my mind immediately make it sound like I'm very cynical of other humans. So I hate that that's, <laughs> that's my thought, but I truly believe that you can be successful in business by being honest and being kind. And that in doing that, you might not grow as quickly, but you can operate with integrity and build really meaningful relationships. And, you know, trust is so important. And so there have been times that we've turned things down because something didn't feel right. And that can be really difficult when you're in business and particularly when there's a lot of opportunity there. But maintaining those core values is just too important not to break. So I guess I would say that, but I, I, I would hope that, that I'm wrong and that a lot of people also agree with me. I just feel like from what I see online, at least, that a lot of people feel like just doing that isn't enough to get ahead. I think most people in terms of like, I guess, the general population believe that in order to be successful in business, you have to be a little bit ruthless. But I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, at least the entrepreneurs that I know, would agree with you in the sense that you can be successful while being, you know, holding your integrity and, and being honest and not trying to, to be cutthroat with everybody that you come across. Yeah, but you know, the intra entrepreneur space is small. So I guess that's, yeah. if I was talking to another entrepreneur, then I would maybe have a different answer. But I think the perception of business by the larger population is that. And that's why I love people like Seth Godin. I really enjoy his, um, his writing on a lot of these topics. And I think it's so important. And you can make a lot of money really quickly if you don't care about those things, but if you're wanting yep. to create something that lasts. And I think, you know, a lot of people that are attracted to entrepreneurship, they want to create a world that looks different and, and the world that they want to live in. And so that's going to be shaped by the principles that they hold. So it makes total sense that they would feel that way. And, and perhaps the larger public should give entrepreneurs a, benefit of the doubt more often than they do. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, with, with my consulting business, you know, a big part of what we do is we recommend suppliers to, to our clients. Um, and we've been approached multiple times, especially in the first couple of years of the business where, you know, a factory would say, Hey, if you guarantee that we get this order, we'll, we'll kick back, 
you know, 10% to you. And, and a lot of times that 10% was a significant amount of money. And I just always felt like it's a conflict of interest, first of all, but I also just felt like it's a betrayal because if I'm guaranteeing that this factory gets the order, I'm not doing what I'm promising in my services, which is that we're going to pick the best factory, not the one that is going to give me a kickback. A kickback you know, so. Yes. And, and immediately when you bring financial incentive, then even if you say, I'm recommending this because it's honestly what I think is the best, it is, uh, there is something more there that is influencing things, whether you're actively aware of it or not. So I agree so much with what you're saying. Three books, podcasts, or blogs that you recommend people check out if they were to understand you better. So I recently, I think it was in January, I read a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which is one of the, my favorite psychology books that I've ever read. And one of the reasons that I enjoy it so much is because the writer, who I'm now blanking, he studies psychology. He's not a psychologist. The curiosity and joyfulness that he brings to understanding the weird ways that the human brain works, I just found fascinating and delightful. So that is one of my favorite books that I've read in a very long time. In contrast, recently, and I don't know that this would be a book that I would say 100% reflects who I am, but it's just something that I read recently that's stuck with me now for quite a while, uh, called The Hidden Life of Trees. And it's written by a German forester who has studied trees for decades. And he talks about the ways that trees communicate with each other and the intelligence that they hold. And it almost reads like a fantasy book, like it almost reads like fiction but it's all based in science and observations that he and other scientists have studied. And it's just really interesting to be able to look at the world differently. And I think particularly in a time like this, where first of all, a lot of us are stuck at home and feeling a little bit stir crazy, myself included, but also when there's just so much negative and stress going on in the world around us, I think it can be helpful to to kind of step out of the human perspective sometimes. Maybe that's getting a little overly philosophical, but I really enjoyed the book for that reason. And my husband and I are now listening to it when we take our evening walks. And it's just really nice to, to get out of your head because we're also really struggling with creating separation between our work lives and our business lives since we're just together working at home all day, every day. And so that's really helpful for doing that. And then as far as podcasts go, I used to listen to a lot of business podcasts. And I think because I am having such a difficult time getting myself out of work mindset at the end of the day, I've taken a little bit of a break in the last few months in listening to business-related podcasts. And I've just been listening to more interesting story types of podcasts because I love podcasts the podcast medium as a storytelling device where you can actually hear people that are involved in the story. And it's just, it's really interesting to me in that way. So I actually, I just opened my phone to look for a few of my, of the more favorite podcasts that I've listened to uh, lately. One of them was Winds of Change, which was just a fun, interesting story about 
CIA conspiracies and the Cold War and whatnot. So that was pretty fun. I also, I have a thing for uh, true crime podcasts, which I don't know why I like to listen to them because then when I'm taking my dog out in the evening, I am very jumpy. So it's not necessarily good for my... uh, (laughs) my mental health, but I do it anyway. Oh, another great podcast that I don't hear a lot of people talk about. It was called The Score, The Bank Robber Diaries. And it's a fascinating character study of this man who used to be a bank robber and he is now a screenwriter. And it's just very interesting. It's it's a little bit difficult to listen to at times. He had a pretty traumatic childhood, but I found the story to be very gripping. So I would say those are some of the top things I'm listening to and have read in the last year. Nice. We'll definitely link those up in the, in the show notes. And yeah, so Emma, thanks for being on the show. I really enjoyed this conversation. If people want to reach out to you, where, where should they go? Sure. Uh, th- first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we are on marketingbyemma.com, on Facebook at Marketing by Emma. You can find me on LinkedIn, also on my personal Facebook. I know in the world of Amazon, a lot of people like to connect that way. So feel free to reach out there. Uh, On our website, we also have an email address and contact form and phone number and all of those things. So we're really available on pretty much any platform that you need to communicate with us. And please don't hesitate to reach out if you have questions. We also offer a free listing analysis for anybody that maybe isn't sure whether their Amazon listing is doing what it needs to be doing. So there, you just go to our website, marketingbyemma.com slash free analysis. There's also a banner at the top of every page that you can click on. And that just has a short form to you to, for you to fill out and include a link to your listing. And we're happy to take a look at that and give some free feedback about things that you may want to consider doing to improve the quality of your listing. Great. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Made Cheddar podcast. If you want to reach out to us, that's podcast at sourcefinancial.com. If you want to check out the show notes from the episode that you just watched, that's sourcefinancial.com slash made in China. And be sure to also check out our YouTube channel, Source Financial, all one word. Cheers. My daddy died. I paid for his whole funeral. I get it. I was supposed to. But after that, if you knew what I had to go through, you would understand why I wanted inside that hole too. You ain't even give me a hug or a pound yet. Asking for money. Daddy ain't even in the ground yet. That ain't what bros do. How you spend your whole life with a stranger you call your brother that don't know you? 2006, Bentley Coop parked at Noble. I was your bulletproof vest when them Crips tried to smoke you. Should be hurt my heart, so I approached you. We on the same team, but you think I'm trying to coach you. I was in first class. I look back.